Welcome to the Grove Community Church Worship Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. Here's this week's message. We hope you enjoy it. It's January 1956. Jim Elliott and four other missionaries made contact for the first time. Real contact with the Akua Indians in Ecuador. They were missionaries, all five of them. Jim and his wife Elizabeth had had been reaching out for for a number of years to the Quechua Indians, and now they found this small, isolated tribe that no one had ever really reached out to. They had really never even seen a person from a different ethnicity. They were sheltered, and they lived a very primitive life. Come to find out later, it was was a very impressive community, a very uh, impressive form of life, very much like the the tribal Indians in the United States, the ones like around this area that were civilized, or the so-called civilized tribes, the tribes that were advanced in their civilization. The the Akua Indians were very similar. They they were uh, very unique. And so for the first time in January of 1956, Jim and his four buddies, who had all moved down there for this one purpose of making an impact in Ecuador and finding this one tribe, this one band that was remote, that had no access to health care or anything, they decided they were going to reach out to this group of Indians. And they made a contact. They were on the shore of a river, and they had flown and landed their plane, actually, on this a uh, long stretch of, of uh, river shore. That was the only place they could really do it. And they landed their, their, small, uh, their small aircraft and they unloaded and they set up a base camp. And it wasn't long before a small group of the Akua Indians came out. They were males, all of them. It's kind of like a, a scouting team. And one of them, whom they later named George, was so excited about meeting these people that looked different, that spoke different, the people that had the plane that they had been watching in the sky, that he wanted to get in the plane. All the other, all the other people in the party were very scared. They were very skeptical of this yellow plane and, and, and this thing that just came out of the sky. I mean, imagine if you're primitive and you've never seen anything like this, and all of a sudden it's right in front of you. Well, George, and I don't remember his real name, but they named him George just because it's easy. George said, I want to ride. And so they took him up in the plane and they took him around and he was able to see his village and they landed. And it was an incredible experience. They were so excited. This was the first human contact outside of their tribe that they had had with anybody outside of Quechua Indians, other tribes that were around them. And I don't remember how many days later, but another group of men came. Ten days later or something like that, I don't know. There were 10 this time, and it was a a group of men that looked a little bit different. And they were dressed differently, and they they were painted differently, and, and they had spears with them. And I hope that was the baby and not my father. That's awesome. Wow. That... That makes, that makes me proud. That makes me proud. 
I'm sorry, I just had, I couldn't let that go. Was that gas? Oh, <laughs> it was more than gas. It was gas with the extra added. You might not have been able to hear that on the Mevo, on the, on the camera, but wow, that was loud. Bro, I'm happy for you, Hayes. He's like, ah. Oh. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, it came from back there, and it was either Hayes or my father, so I had to ask. <laughs> Ooh, sorry. But this group of men that came this time, the ten of them, they looked different, and they were carrying spears. And that day on the beach, Jim Elliott and his four missionary buddies, who had made this large inroad into a group of people that had never been reached before, were murdered. They were found with spears in their body, floating down the river. Elizabeth, Jim's wife, and the wives of the other four men were immediate widows in their 20s. And Jim had a 10-month-old baby girl. Life is hard. And disaster happens all the time. Some disasters end up in destruction of property, losing everything. Some end up in floods that take away lots of stuff and that you have to start over rebuilding. Some, some disasters end with the death of loved ones. We are human. And as humans, we suffer. Now, it wasn't always God's intention for suffering and devastation to be part of his creation. But we allowed it in with sin. And when sin came in, so did disaster and destruction. And some destruction is hard to explain, like wildfires and hurricanes. And some are man-made disasters and destructions. And some are things like cancer that we can't explain. But all of us know Disaster, destruction, death. And when it's caused by someone else and it's been inflicted on us, it's extremely hard to get over that. It's hard to be able to forgive someone who's hurt you. It's hard to be able to forgive someone who's taken something from you. It's hard to be able to forgive someone who has taken your life and thrown it for a loop all because of selfishness or greed. But that's the world we live in. And so how do we deal with this? I mean, it's not going to go away. As much as I wish it would, as much as I would love for there to be peace on earth, it's not going to go away with the blink of an eye or a brushstroke. And so how do we deal with it? And it's, it's in these moments that I think we can find strength in Scripture and in the stories that are there. And in the lives of the people who have gone before us, who have lived through disaster and destruction, who have lived through death and murder. Those who know what it's like to lose everything or to have it taken from you. But imagine what it must be like for a God who created everybody with love. 
a God who loves every human being on earth. Think what it must be like for this God who put it all in motion and wants nothing but peace and joy. The fruit of the Spirit, that's what he longs for everybody to experience and to have. Imagine what it must be like for him. But how bad is it when it's someone close to you that hurts you? And sometimes that hurts the most. When someone close to you inflicts pain, that's what God feels every time. Every time there's death. Every time there's destruction. Every time we in this room, we watching online, every time we do something wrong, we don't do it against ourselves, although there are repercussions for us. We do it against the God who created us and loves us. When we're disobedient, it's not disobedient to us. It's disobedient to him. And so God responds. And it's in his response that we can learn how we should respond to death and destruction and when other people do bad things or when bad things happen to us. Because bad things happen to God every day because we are people who choose bad over good every day. And so from him, we can learn what it looks like then to love even in pain, to love and forgive even in death and destruction. And so we're going to look at this psalm today, Psalm 103, and I read the first five verses earlier. Now we're going to start with verse 6. And this, we are told, is a psalm of David, and we believe, or scholars believe, that this was written as a form of worship, and that it would have been worship and sung uh, and led as a, as a response hymn in the temple particularly during times of, uh, of thanksgiving and times of confession. Verse 6 of Psalm 103, you can follow on the screen or on your smart device. Or if you have your Bible, you can open to Psalm 103, verse 6. And this is what it says. The Lord, and here the word Lord is capitalized, which I've told you before, always means if in your version... Lord is capitalized, L-O-R-D is all caps, that it means Yahweh. The actual word there in Hebrew is Yahweh, which is God's name. Yahweh, which makes it then not just any Lord, but a personal Lord. Yahweh, the one who revealed himself. Yahweh, the one who wants to be in personal relationship with us. This is a personal God. Yahweh works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord, Yahweh, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He doesn't give back what we give to him. He doesn't respond in anger when we refuse to be obedient. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. It's a beautiful hymn of forgiveness. 
It's a beautiful statement of God's love towards us. It's a reminder that even when we, when we are the ones that bring death and devastation, God forgives. Even when we are disobedient to him, God shows up and forgives. And it's interesting is from verse 3 to verse 13, really from verse 3 to verse 16, there is this, this hymn of celebrating what God had done in Israel. And there's actually connections back to Exodus. Two of these verses actually are almost word for word found in Exodus. And right in the center is this verse, verse 8, right in the middle of this, this part of the hymn. And it says, the Lord, Yahweh, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Does someone else have a different word there in verse 8 than merciful? Gracious, all right? What else? Compassionate. Those are the two biggest ones. So mercy, grace, and compassion. All are wrapped up in this word. And the Hebrew word here is rahum. Rahum. And it comes from the root that also means to greet, to accept with love. Rahum. The Lord is rahum. It also carries, like our word last week was connected to this idea of, of breastfeeding, of cuddling your baby and providing for it. This word has a root that connects to the root word for womb. The place of protection. The place of warmth, the place of life. And so when it says the Lord is merciful, he is merciful in a way that he gives grace and compassion. He gives life to us and he loves us like a mom loves the baby that is growing inside of their belly, right? I've never experienced that, obviously, but moms, you have. And it's beautiful. There's nothing like it. There's nothing that men can experience that are even close to the same. There is a connection that is in the very innermost part of your being, both metaphysically and physically, right? The Lord has that kind of love and protection for you. And it abounds in grace because he's slow to anger and abounding in chesed, kept steadfast, never-ending, never-ceasing love. So God's mercy cradles us and comforts us and covers us and gives us life and protects us from everything outside. It's the place of growth. Now what's interesting, this word rahum occurs other places in the Old Testament. As I mentioned earlier, it's connected to Exodus, particularly the part of Exodus where Moses is up on the mountain and the people are disobedient and they start worshiping a golden calf and they want to go back to Egypt. Do you remember this part of the story? They want to go back to Egypt and they want to give up all of these promises of God. They have been totally disobedient. They have worshiped another God. They have abandoned their faith in the God, the true God, Yahweh, who's revealed himself to them. And they've said, ah, to heck with all that. We don't care about what he said or who he is or the fact that he loves us or that he's brought us this far. We want to go back. 
And this word rahum is God's response to their disobedience. But God loved them and was gracious towards them, even when they didn't deserve it. This shows up also in Nehemiah a couple of places. In Nehemiah, where he's recounting when they come back together and they've rebuilt walls and they and they're ready to um, when they're ready to set everything back right and to commit themselves to being obedient to God, they they have a, a day of confession. And in this day of confession, they go through all of the things that they had done wrong against God in breaking covenant. And in that confession, in that part of the book, it talks about the fact that they were disobedient. In this very area in Exodus, when God brought them out of Egypt and they wanted to go back, and it used Rahum there, and then it uses it again explaining how the people were disobedient to God in the, uh, in the promised land. Once they got into the promised land, everything was there for them. They had all that they could ever desire or want, and they were disobedient. And even in their disobedience, God showed Rahum. He was merciful. He showed them grace. He was slow to anger and steadfast in love. But I think there's a New Testament story that really connects with this Hebrew word. It's the story of the prodigal son. Remember, I told you that this word means not only mercy or compassion or grace. It also means to greet with love. Chahum is what the father in the story of the prodigal son shows his son as he returns. Do you know the story? The son has been disobedient. He has said, basically, forget you. I don't care about you, father. And he takes his inheritance and he goes and he squanders it. And he's disobedient not only to his father and he's not only to his heritage, but he's disobedient to the God that he grew up worshiping. And he throws all of that away for selfish reasons and then when he's at his lowest and it can't get any worse, he runs back home thinking, even if I can be a servant in my father's house, even if I can just have the scraps off his table, that's better than where I'm living now and what I'm doing. And he's going back just begging to come on as a servant. He's going back not thinking that his father will forgive him. And he shows up and in a distance the father sees him. Right? And what does the father do, guys? He takes off running to greet his son that was lost. The son that was disobedient. That's Krahum. It's God running towards you with arms wide open. Now, if God does that for us, who bring death and destruction, who destroy his planet, who destroy relationships, who destroy each other, if he does that for the worst of us, shouldn't we do that for one another? Guys, we live in a culture that has gotten this way wrong. If you're a Democrat or a Republican, you hate the other person or the other party. And so we put our trust, we put our trust in platforms and in people 
and in politics. Or where this shows up also is, and that's, by the way, what the people of Israel were doing when they sinned against God. After all of those years, they started trusting in politicians instead of God. They started trusting in other people instead of God. They were divisive and divided, and they started trusting their party line rather than trusting God in one another. Isn't that where we are? And what was God's answer for that during those days? It was Rahum. It was mercy and kindness and forgiveness. It was greeting with love. Other people during that time were so influenced by the culture around them, they started living like everybody else. You couldn't tell a difference between them and between, and between uh, uh, the, the heathens, so to speak, of their age. You couldn't tell a difference between the people that were supposed to be following God and the people who weren't. There was no difference. Does that not describe much of what we see in North America now? I mean, when people look at us as Christians, do they see a different life? Or are we just adding to the noise of the first set? Do we add anger and hate and divisiveness? If we, like those people, cling to culture, it will disappoint And it does divide. Not in the same way that the political side of things does. But the culture divides because it creates selfishness in us. Does it not? I mean, ultimately, isn't that what the North American culture does? It drives us to self-want and self-whatever. It's all about me and what I can buy and what I can do and what I can experience and the things I can put on my wall. The degrees I have or the awards I can stack on my shelf. And the answer to that is not more selfishness. It's krahum. It's compassion and love. It's greeting other people with open arms. And so the Lord gives us an example of what it looks like. He tells us the story of the prodigal son, and he invites us to step into this position like the father in the story, ready and willing to to show rahum, to show love and compassion to others. Even those who have wronged us or harmed us or think differently than us or act differently than us or believe differently than us, Guys, what our, what our world needs desperately is krahum, grace, mercy, compassion. But here's the thing, rahum means not only mercy, but to be more precise, it means actively pursuing mercy. It's not mercy when it's convenient. It's not mercy if it falls in my lap. It's actively pursuing mercy. So God actively pursues us. He is actively pursuing not only us, but everybody in this world. He is actively pursuing people to show them mercy, and he gives us opportunities. Now, there are people out there that don't want his mercy, and if you come as an instrument of mercy, they don't want it. But that doesn't matter. That doesn't change our actions. Their response doesn't change our responsibility. 
So God is working in this world, actively showing mercy, and he invites us into this program of actively showing mercy. Rahum. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. The linesmen that have given you power this week, before they set you back up, did you go ask them what political party they were part of? Did you ask them what denomination or if they were even involved in church? Did you go out there and ask them, you know, hey, uh, how do you spend your money? No. See, they're there because not only it's a part of their job, but they do it because they really do care. And I know that because my father-in-law is an engineer for Alabama Power, and he's been one of those people hundreds of times over his career. He does it not because he's getting paid. He does it because he likes what he does, because he knows it's helpful. This week, those people have been our heroes, right? Or the neighbors that come out of their house and they're cutting trees down and I'm watching this and one neighbor has a Biden uh, thing and one neighbor has a Trump flag flying and it doesn't matter at that point, does it? They're just being neighbors. We can do this. We know what it's like to be slow to anger and abounding and steadfast in love, but do we choose it always? And the answer is no. Rahum. It took them a few days to realize what had happened. Elizabeth Elliot and the other wives of the missionaries. When they found out, obviously they were devastated. And fearing for themselves and for their families, they abandoned their mission in the little compound that they had set up. And they stepped back. Two years later, Elizabeth and then her three-year-old went back. And the widow of the pilot went back. But this time, because during the time apart, they had made inroads through a different connection, they didn't go back to set up a camp far away. Elizabeth Elliot and her daughter went to live with the tribe. The very men that killed her husband. All ten of them that drove a stake through them. She lived among them. She taught them. She developed an alphabet and a way to read. And then she shared a different language with them so that they could be educated. She brought medical attention in. She literally changed the trajectory of their lives. The people who murdered her husband. And George, the one who went around in the plane ride, what I didn't tell you is that the reason why they killed the men was because he lied. That day when they got back to the tribe, he lied about their intentions. 
He lied about them because he thought it would make him sound important and good. He lied for selfish reasons. And his lie led to their death. But do you know that when Elizabeth Elliot met him, she walked up to him and she forgave him. And she greeted him with love. And it wasn't long after that that the whole tribe committed their life to Christ. I hope this message was meaningful and powerful to you, but I also hope that it was challenging. And as always, don't just hear it, put it into action. Until next week, have a great one.